I am speaking to you, a human individual named Peter, to tell you that God exists and that you must render to him an account. It's God who's speaking to you by my voice, Scripture, having collected the Word of God, tradition, having transmitted it, and papal infallibility defining for forever its finer points. Here's who you are. You are Peter. Here's your origin. You were created by God from all eternity, though you were born in the year 1920, after Jesus Christ. Here's your place in the world. Here's what you should do. Here's the deal. If you observe the law of love, you will be saved, you Peter, and you will become part of the glorious body of Christ. So be it. That's how the French philosopher Louis Althusser describes in narrative form the nature of Christian ideology, which he claims has the same internal structure as all ideology. One, the personal call of an individual turning this individual into a subject. Two, the subjection of this subject to a larger subject. Three, a mutual recognition of the little subject and the larger subject, of the community of subjects and of the little subject as a subject, and four, an absolute guarantee that all will be well, necessarily accompanied by an amen. This is one of three visions of the relationship between Christianity and ideology that we'll get into on this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. And I'm your host, David Inchauskas. It is wonderful to be back with you for the second half of our mini-series on ideology and liberation theology. Last time, we looked at João Bautista Libano and Francisco Taborda's Mysterium Liberationis chapter on ideology, which in fact has turned out to be our most popular episode so far in terms of the number of listeners in its first month after release. So I'm loving that. Clearly, the topic of ideology is relevant, important, and interesting, and so I'm happy to offer a second take, which will, in effect, be a series of three perspectives from the French Marxist philosopher Louis Althusser, the German theologian Karl Rahner, and the Spanish-born Salvadoran philosopher and theologian Ignacio Eacuria. And it's fitting to end uh, with Eucharia in this month of November, when we remember the holy souls who have died, especially those who died on November 16th, 1989, the attack on the Jesuit residence in El Salvador, during which the U.S.-backed Salvadoran military assassinated Eucharia and seven of his companions. And following a presentation of each of these approaches to ideology, I'll offer some synthesizing comments, and then we'll conclude with responses to two questions that I've recently received from listeners. But for now, let's start with Althusser on ideology. (music) 
So why Althusser? Well, if we go back to episode four on liberation theology and Marxism, you recall that uh, Dean Detloff and I discussed that according to Enrique Dussel, many liberation theologians of the 20th century in Latin America engaged with Marxism indirectly through a line of interpretation that featured Althusser, uh, born in 1918 and died in 1990, and one of his students, uh, Marta Harnaker. Only a few liberation theologians, like Eucharia himself, for example, had deeply studied Marx's texts and directly engaged with them in a philosophical way. For the most part, liberation theologians were interested in Marxism as a sociological tool that would help them understand how capitalist economies function and how one might resist the injustices of capitalism. And it just so happens that Althusser offered a particularly helpful sociological approach to capitalism in his ideological state apparatus theory, which Libanio and Taborda cited in the text we addressed last time. So what is this theory? Althusser begins with the Marxist reality of reproduction, which Marx lays out in Capital. Here, reproduction refers to the fact that capitalists or business owners rely on the physical reproduction of workers as well as the reproduction of the relations of production in order to assure the continuation of the capitalist system. First, capitalists need to make sure that their workers are alive and healthy, healthy enough to work productively and certainly alive enough to do so. They also need to ensure that workers have children who can repopulate the workforce from generation to generation. As such, capitalists want working conditions to be safe enough and wages to be high enough to keep workers working efficiently. At the same time, though, they don't want to spend too much money on ideal working conditions and salaries because these expenses cut into their profits. Second, capitalists need to make sure that their proprietary domination over workers is perpetuated. The owners are the owners, and the workers are the workers. These two shall not meet. Though the workers are the primary producers of the value of a product, they, as their name suggests, are the ones who are doing the work, the owners reap the benefits of the exchange of this product on the market. The workers make the things that make the money that makes the profits, but the owners determine what to do with the profits. This relationship is unequal, and the owners quite like it that way. Yet there's nothing scientifically that says it has to be that way. We can imagine different iterations of the relations of production that are more equal, like a co-op model or a people-owned model, in which the distinction between administrators and producers is only functional, and folks, administrators, and producers together participate democratically in financial decisions. So given that alternatives are possible and favorable to the great majorities, capitalists have to come up with justifications for the unjust capitalist system to convince people that capitalism is, in fact, the way to go. And of course, when this convincing is not successful, it helps to have a way to suppress rebels, to make them submit to the system. Here's where the Marxist technical definition of the state comes in. As Althusser put it, quote, The state is a machine of repression that allows the dominant classes to assure their domination over the working class by submitting it to the process of the extortion of surplus value, end quote. And put simply, surplus value refers to profit, financial value that capitalists squeeze out of workers by paying them less and working them more. What does Althusser mean when he defines the state as a machine of repression? 
Essentially, a whole system of state apparatuses, of government, administration, army, police, courts, prisons, stands against the working class's pursuit to own the means of production, to claim for themselves the benefits of the work that they do, to take economic power away from the owners, and to redistribute it to the workers. If one day, a group of Amazon workers enters Amazon headquarters and sets up a new worker-owned business structure of Amazon, what will happen to them? If they manage to make it through the security at the front door, then the state will mobilize as a machine of repression and put an end to the workers' coup. The police will come, perhaps killing some workers and throwing others in jail to await a trial that will eventually put them in prison. Now, these sorts of events, though some workers might dream of them daily, do not happen daily. In part, workers know what will become of them if they attempt to resist. But for the most part, workers don't resist because they have bought into the capitalist system ideologically. As I said in the opening segment, workers have given their amen, as they did to Christianity. They've given their amen to capitalism. It's how things are. It's how things are meant to be. I am the worker. You are the owner. So be it. Perhaps I'll seek some minor reforms in the system, but for the most part, I'm good. I'm just happy and grateful to be alive. I'm happy to have a job, and I've got my relationship with God. I've got my relationship with my family. Those are the things that really matter. And that's where the notion of the ideological state apparatus enters the scene. In a way that's not directly violent in the same way as the machine of state repression mentioned before, the religious apparatus, the educational one, the family apparatus, the syndical apparatus, the news media apparatus, and the cultural apparatus function alongside the repressive state apparatus towards the common goal of the reproduction of capitalism. Althusser argues that while in the medieval period, under the feudal mode of production, the two most prominent ideological state apparatuses were religion and the family. In the modern period, under the capitalist mode of production, the two most prominent ones are the school and the family. Nowadays, it's in the school that we learn to be obedient to authority, to learn our place in history, that is, liberal capitalist history, and to learn how to funnel ourselves successfully into the economy. We hear things like school. School helps you get a job, and if you do more school, you'll get a good job. That said, Althusser does not see the ideological state apparatuses in every way and at all times in lockstep with the state and with capitalism. Rather, class struggle is present in every apparatus in varying degrees at different times. I think here of the immense struggle taking place in school boards around the United States right now, a struggle that has been a major factor in recent elections. What books should be read in school? Whose stories are being told in school? How do we talk about racism in school? Should we even be talking about racism in school? Some are asking. How do we talk about sex in school? Should we even be talking about sex in school? Some are asking. What information is presented about the Cold War? How tied should schools be to the production of the workforce that capitalists would like to have? All of these are real questions that folks are discussing now, and the struggles of race, class, and gender are writ large. I think Althusser's assessment, that is, that the dominant apparatus right now is the school together with the family, that, that remains true, and that the present conflictivity in and around schools really does demonstrate uh, that Althusser was correct on this point. So 
Ideology exists in ideological state apparatuses, like the school, the family, and the church. And Althusser will insist that this existence is material and operates practically. He means to say that while many folks think of ideology in terms of you have this ideology, so you act in this way, a prioritization of the ideal or the spiritual, the case is actually the inverse. You have these material practices, so you are operating according to and under a certain ideological apparatus. Here, there's a prioritization of the material. This point of view is not surprising for a Marxist, but to demonstrate it, curiously enough, Althusser does not cite a Marxist, but rather the 17th century Christian scientist, philosopher, and theologian Blaise Pascal. Pascal famously wrote, quote, Bless yourself with holy water, have masses said, and so on, by a simple and natural process. This will make you believe and will dull you, will quiet your proudly critical intellect. End quote. Althusser wants to show, as Pascal did, that at the phenomenological level, our beliefs often follow our practices, not vice versa. For example, I was baptized. I went to Mass, I learned to say my prayers, etc., long before I had the intellectual capacity and the will to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, to believe in the Church, to believe in the Church's teachings, etc. And as a young adult, for example, I prayed before a statue of the Virgin of Guadalupe for the first time before I even knew the story of the Virgin of Guadalupe. I practiced something because a group was doing it and I was a part of that group. And then I wound up believing what they believed in the end. This is a serious subject and everything, for sure. But I can't help uh, from making a lighter connection. It just so happened that the day when I was rereading this passage from Althusser on Pascal to prepare for this episode, I also watched an episode of The Office in which Michael Scott says something like, Of course there is a God. If not, why would there be churches? And his statement is meant to be ridiculous, and, and indeed it kind of is. At the same time, though, it also reveals something very true about ideology and the way people think and act. We see the schools, we go to them, and we buy into the education system as it is. We watch the news, we read the papers, we buy into what they tell us, we go to an art museum, we see a show at the theater, and we buy into a certain conception of beauty. As Althusser summarizes, the ideas of the ideological subject are, quote, material acts embedded in material practices, regulated by material rituals, themselves in turn defined by the material ideological apparatus, end quote. Show me how you act in material reality, Althusser is saying, and I will tell you what your ideology is. I have no need to see in into your thoughts to know your ideology. I need to see what you do in time and space. And I use this you intentionally here because per Althusser, ideology resides in individuals interpolated or hailed as subjects. Ideology calls us to play a role as individuals who say yes or amen to a system of relations. Althusser gives us an example. Imagine you are walking down the street and you hear a police officer say, hey, you, how do you react? You might feel an immediate pang of guilt. What did I do? And you might stop and turn toward the officer. You might then put on an air of submissiveness. Yes, officer. I'm sorry, officer. Absolutely, officer. Whatever you need, officer. 
Thank you, officer. Have a nice day, officer. Exhibited in this behavior is a whole world of ideological training that ranges from mom and dad having told us that one should be polite to the police to artistic representations like in a movie of people being arrested and thrown into prison for not being polite to the police, from having a relative or a friend in prison and not wanting that for ourselves, to seeing the police murder folks on the news and on social media. In that moment of interpolation, hey you, we hear the call to be a subject, subjected to the greater subject, so that all will be well, or at least as well as it could be under the circumstances. And we know that if we don't subject our subjectivity to this twisted system of relations, then we are in for trouble, perhaps unto death. So that's what is meant by ideological interpretation. And now we can return to our friend Peter, who we called or interpolated into the Christian life at the beginning of the episode. And we'll recall that there were four components to his idealization which we can simplify as one, his being called as a personal you, two, his surrender to a greater subject, in this case God, three, his recognition of himself, others, and the subject in a system of relations, in this case, his place and role in the church, and four, his assurance that everything will be all right now that he's surrendered. In this case, uh, this assurance would be his eternal salvation. Althusser might say that we can see these components in operation at the beginning of St. Ignatius of Loyola's first principle and foundation, which reads, quote, God created the human being to praise, reverence, and serve God, and by doing this, to save their souls. God created all other things on the face of the earth to help fulfill this purpose, end quote. A personal creation, a submission to God, a relation to all things, a blessed assurance. Althusser specifies that Jesus is the perfect example of ideological interpolation. He shows us with his historical example that if we accept the love of God for us, our loving Father, who relates to us personally, if we submit to his will, which will likely entail great suffering in this life, through which we must persevere with patience and docility, and if we love one another by building up the church and the world, our surrender to the Father will be worth it. For even though we die, we shall, like Jesus, be raised up to eternal life. It's this worldview, rich in significance, into which a human subject, Peter, is invited. He experiences it. He sees himself in it. He accepts it. He says, yes, this is right. This is who I am. I am a sinner in need of the grace of God. I accept the salvation won for me by Jesus Christ. I surrender to you, Lord. Take me as I am. He gives his amen. He plunges into the waters of baptism and he emerges a new man, a Christian subject. And now, as Althusser says, quote, he marches along on his own, end quote. No one is putting a gun to his head. He's now a Christian, and he does the Christian thing. He's at once free and subjected. Yet this Christianity does not exist apart from the economy, apart from the state, apart from the other ideological apparatuses. Indeed, to accept Christianity, to, quote, do the Christian thing, end quote, is in general to accept one or two dominant ways of proceeding in the contemporary world. A liberal civil religion or a Christian nationalism, the way of moderate reform, or the way of totalitarian empire, the way of Biden, or the way of Trump. The one follows Jesus of Nazareth, a pilgrim of peace and tolerance, and the other follows Christ the King, the way, the truth, and the life. 
before which every knee shall bend. Neither of these political approaches challenges capitalism, for capitalism can thrive both under liberalism and under fascism. And when things are not going particularly well, as they generally are not, those who are in one camp find an enemy in the other, and the root causes of oppression go untouched. The average Christian marches to the beat of the capitalist drum. No state repression is needed. Such is the perspective of Althusser. Now, Karl Rahner, born 1904, died 1984, a German Jesuit priest and theologian known for his influence on the Second Vatican Council, especially via his formulation of Christian revelation as God's self-communication. Many think of Rahner's theology as a synthesis of philosophical existentialism, especially of the Heideggerian sort, and theological Thomism, that is, the body of work following from the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. Indeed, Rahner was a Catholic and also a personal student of Martin Heidegger. Rahner is a key figure for liberation theology, since many liberation theologians were formed theologically in Europe, when Rahner's theology was taking hold. And I can tell you, working on theology in France now, that Rahner's influence is still supreme many years later. Some liberation theologians, like Ignacio Eucaria, were directly influenced by Rahner in that they had him as a professor personally. And one can trace, indeed, a line of thought that runs from Heidegger through Rahner to Eucaria. In 19... 65, near the end of the Second Vatican Council, Rahner published an article entitled, Is Christianity an Ideology? Let's talk about it. What does perhaps the greatest theologian of the 20th century have to say about the relation between the two? To start, Rahner claims that the relationship between the Christian faith and ideology was at the heart of the Council's third session, which worked on the issue of the church in the modern world. In other words, he thought, and many bishops and theologians of his day thought, that the topic of ideology was central for any theology that would dialogue with modernity. However, though questions of ideology are implicitly present throughout the document the Council would produce, Gaudium et Spes, the document only uses the word ideology, interestingly, itself one time in paragraph 8, which I'll cite now. Quote, Differences crop up, too, between races and between various kinds of social orders, between wealthy nations and those which are less influential or are needy, finally between international institutions born of the popular desire for peace and the ambition to propagate one's own ideology, as well as collective greeds existing in nations or other groups. What results is mutual distrust, enmities, conflicts, and hardships. Of such is man at once the cause and the victim. End quote. Briefly, we can note that this employment of the term ideology marshals its sectarian sense. Ideology is a partial view of reality that serves the interests of a particular group and stirs up conflict at the expense of a good, more universal project of peace. It's an us-against-them mentality that perpetuates distrust and hatred. Let's take this first look with us as we jump into Rahner proper. There will be some resonances that I think we'll see. 
Thankfully, Rahner is very methodological in his writing here, which is rather helpful for the reader in general and for me in particular as I lay out his argumentation. He says he's going to address four topics and four sections, and well, he does just that. Section one, what is ideology? Section two, why might one think that Christianity is an ideology? Section three, why is Christianity not an ideology? Four, what are some implications of this position? So what's ideology? Rahner gives five characteristics followed by a general definition, which he takes from one of his contemporaries, the German philosopher Reinhard Louth. For Rahner, ideology is one, false. Two, a closed, self-sufficient system. Three, the absolutization of some partial aspect of reality. Four, inspirational of a certain politics. And five, the supreme regulator of the general life of a society. So an ideology is first and foremost wrong, and it's wrong because it's a partial view made into a total one. It's dangerous because it makes people act even to the point where they think they are acting for the greater good of society when they are not. So in conjunction with this line of interpretation of the term ideology, he proposes Loth's definition, which is, quote, a pseudoscientific interpretation of reality in service of a political design to justify it retrospectively, end quote. To me, the fascinating part of this definition is the part right at the end, to justify it retrospectively. What Rahner and Loth seem to be saying is that, somewhat following Pascal and Althusser, ideology follows action and not vice versa. However, there's some contradiction here, given that Rahner had just written a few lines above that ideology inspires politics. How is it that ideology both inspires and also retrospectively justifies politics? Interesting question, one to which I have no answer right now other than to say that Rahner is a little confusing to me here. Anyways, that's the definition he gives, and he sticks to it throughout the essay, which more power to him is nice. Uh, he proceeds by enumerating three types of ideology, again, very nice and clear. One, ideologies of imminence, which are the absolutization of certain partial sectors of the world of our experience. He gives us some examples. Nationalism an absolutization of one nation among many, racism, the absolutization of one race among many, technologism, an absolutization of technical expertise and creativity among many other areas of expertise and creativity, sociologism, the absolutization of a sociological interpretation of reality at the expense of many other types of interpretations, and materialism, an absolutization of material reality at the expense of spiritual or transcendent reality. With this last one, Rahner pauses to offer a special dig. He says that materialists who claim that Christianity is ideological are actually the ideological ones. They negate God, mind, liberty, and personhood. By closing off the possibility of spiritual reality, they absolutize what is, in fact, an incomplete view. Second type of ideology would be ideologies of transminence, which absolutize transcendent realities outside the world of our experience and hold that all reality is fixed by the supreme, the infinite, the absolute. These ideologies don't take temporal realities seriously. As ideologies of imminence totalize some partial temporary reality at the expense of other ones, ideologies of transminence totalize the beyond at the expense of the here and now. The here and now has no independence, no relative autonomy. It simply obeys the orders of the eternal. Third type 
ideologies of transcendence, which have as their only goal the pursuit of transcending the two previous ideologies. Very, very fascinating a notion of ideology here uh, in this definition. On one hand, they deny any committed engagement with present realities to avoid becoming imminent totalitarians. On the other, they deny any commitment to the spiritual, to the beyond, to avoid becoming metaphysical absolutists. We might call these folks relativists, historicists, or deconstructivists these days. Rahner notes that the non-engaged, non-constructive attitude of these folks ends up making communism look attractive. One might think, compared to the ideologues of transcendence, the eternal nuancers, at least communists have a project. At least they want to change history for the better. That's a wrap for the pr first part, what is ideology? Rahner now moves on to why some think that Christianity is ideological. He gives four reasons. I'm going to shorten them to three because, to be honest, the first one and the fourth one are kind of closely related, and I don't see much of a difference between them, so we're just going to kind of put them into one category. First, some say that Christianity is arbitrary and non-scientific. Per Rahner's previous definition of ideology, Christianity counts as an ideology for these people because it's false. If something cannot be justified with evidence according to the rigors of scientific observation, it's fake, it's made up, it's imaginary. He writes, quote, And little does it matter here at the end of the day the reasons that one gives to explain the origin of religion. It may be the opium of the people, the product of this or that form of society, the utopic elevation of the human condition, the fantasy of an always unfulfilled instinct, which is nothing more than humanity's attempt at an interpretation of the whole of its existence, end quote. What counts for these folks are the facts, and Christianity isn't factual, it's make-believe. Second, some claim that Christianity is an ideology based on the historical fact that it has been used by political movements to justify their temporal ends. Mostly, these political movements have been conservative. Monarchs invoke Christianity to establish their divine right. Capitalists invoke Christianity to keep workers humble like Christ and to remind them that their fallen human nature will never permit them to establish an economy that surpasses capitalist realism about their selfishness. However, Rahner notes, every now and then, the revolutionary left manipulates Christianity as well. In general, though, in this second category, many people just look at church leaders, see their corruption, their power brokering, their worldliness, and conclude that Christianity at the end of the day is as spineless as its leaders, whom economic and political personalities toss around like ragdolls. Third, some claim that Christianity falls into the categories of the ideologies of transmanence or transcendence. Christianity is about, quote, the incomprehensible mystery of a God who's superior to the world and who procures the salvation of sinful and finite human beings by the absolute and merciful gift of God's very self, end quote. Christians either take refuge in the beyond, in this superior and mysterious God, or they hold that because God is beyond any absolute we can know, and certainly beyond all temporal realities, all we can do is an adopt a non-engaged, non-committed position towards reality, a sort of totalizing negative theology that deconstructs any projects, spiritual or temporal. And so we have three critiques of Christianity as ideology. How does Rahner respond to them? Well, in the next section, to get started, he states that it's out of the scope of this article to respond to the basic objection that Christianity is ideological because it's false. 
And I'm kind of with him on that in the sense that to establish why Christianity asserts its absolute truth is an important task of fundamental theology, but it's maybe not something that one could do in the matter of a few pages in an article. Rather here, he says that he'll offer four claims that establish the non-ideological nature of Christianity aside from the big question of Christianity's truth, which can be addressed elsewhere as a project of its own, and many people do address this project. Two claims are more defensive of these four, why it's not coherent to dismiss all non-scientific searches for truth as ideological, and why Christianity is not a closed system in relation to what we might call its adversaries. And two of the four claims are more positive. Christianity is fundamentally one, an experience, and two, a history, rather than a system of ideas. The first opponents of Christianity, will recall, held that it was ideological because it professed as truth what cannot be established by empirical methods. Rahner responds that, indeed, if you reject any sort of metaphysics, you're bound to reject Christianity too. However, you should not reject metaphysics, he says, and in fact, you cannot reject metaphysics. When folks say that all metaphysics are ideological, they themselves are making a metaphysical affirmation, namely relativism, skepticism, or the like. It's not possible to establish scientifically that all truth is scientific alone. So you're making a metaphysical option when you claim something about the truth or falsity of that which is outside of positive observation. Deniers of metaphysics fall into a self-contradiction. Further, to reject metaphysics wholesale is to reject human transcendental experience, which he claims to be, quote, a good shared by all people open to the truth, end quote. It's simply the case, he thinks, that people have experiences of spiritual reality, of liberty, of a search for truth, that point to a human nature that goes beyond mere biological existence. To deny this is to, as he stated before, fall into a materialist ideology that totalizes matter at the expense of spirit. Rahner also wants to address opponents who argue that Christianity is ideological because it claims absolute truth for itself, though it's simply one of many responses to the great questions. There are other religions. There are other metaphysical philosophical systems. Christianity is not the only one. To this objection, Rahner essentially calls out its non sequitur. It does not follow that because there are multiple possible answers to a question, one of the answers is necessarily wrong. It's possible that one or some of the answers are wrong. It's possible that all of the answers are wrong. It's possible that all of the answers are right. It's also possible that the question has no answer. However, you have to look into it. You have to do your homework. The, the reality of multiple possibilities does not necessarily negate a given possibility, and it does not necessarily negate the search itself. So, in our world of pluralism, says Rahner, it's necessary to hold and balance two poles, the courage to decide and an openness to revision. Make informed decisions, don't retreat from commitment. At the same time, adjust when new information arises that contradicts what you thought you knew. Be flexible, but don't be so flexible that you're without integrity. Stand and stand for something, but be ready to move too. By the same token, protect yourself against the rationalism that pretends to the intelligibility of all reality. Allow mystery to take hold of you, Rahner says. He writes, quote, The true human attitude consists of reflecting on the givens of daily reality, freeing up their profound implications, and letting oneself be softly seized by the ultimate mystery that they conceal. 
that is the foundation of all that exists, end quote. Quite poetic, quite mystic, and I think this is what we often see with Rahner, a scholarly, methodical way of proceeding that every now and then opens up to a deep existential spirituality. Moving on, but still in the domain of defensive claims, Rahner seeks to respond to the objection that Christianity is an ideology of the type that Vatican II condemned, conflictive, pitying one party against another, rather. Rahner says that Christianity is, is not exclusive but open to everything. He seems to mean two things by this. First, Christians, according to their own doctrine, see God as wanting to save all human beings, and following this God, they also wish for the ultimate good of all human beings. The project of Christianity is not to divide people, but to unite them in the love of God. Its adversaries are not really adversaries at all, but sisters and brothers whom God loves as well. Second, Christianity goes beyond itself. It's not a closed system. It opens up to mystery. God is an ultimate mystery, so no Christian can rightfully claim, I know all the truth. This sense of God as mystery should keep Christians humble when it comes to totalizing claims. The Christian sense of mystery should be a barrier against the ever-present possibility of falling into ideology. Now for the more positive claims. Christianity is an experience, he says. Our daily life reveals our spiritual structure and horizon, our finite condition, our intellectual dimension, our capacity for free choice. These everyday moments of transcendence are not ideological, they are simply the givens of human life. What does Christianity have to do with these spiritual givens of our experience? Well, Karl uh, Rahner writes, quote, Christianity is nothing other than this transcendental experience taken to its perfection, to its maximum breadth, end quote. How is it taken there? By grace, he continues, quote, God shares God's self with God's finite creature, giving immediate access to God, participation in the very life of God, end quote. Grace, in particular the grace of God's self-gift to humanity, is the Christian thing. Christianity is not a system of ideas. It's an experience of God's grace meeting our everyday human spirituality. Next, Christianity is a history. This history is one of salvation, and its key event is the person of Jesus Christ, this self-gift of God to humanity who came into history. But how does Rahner understand history? What does the word history mean to him? He writes, quote, History, with a capital H, is precisely the history, with a lowercase h, of this transcendental nature as such, end quote. There's the connection between Christianity as experience of transcendence and Christianity as history. God enters human history, that is, the realm of our experience in Jesus Christ, human and God, and seizes us in that place of our liberty, intelligence, spirituality, finitude, elevating it, quote, to the order of grace, and quote, to its, quote, eternal destiny before God, end quote. This elevation is not an abandonment of temporality, but a relativizing of it. Humanity in Christ in, engages, quote, in historical reality with all the seriousness that it merits while discovering, at the price of a painful experience, the contingent and thus relative character of such reality, end quote. In this way, Christianity avoids both the ideology of imminence and its graceful elevation 
and the ideologies of transminence and transcendence in the Christ event, which saves not over and above human history, but in and through it. Christianity is thus a, quote, synthesis of the absolute and the historical, end quote, and as such is non-ideological. All right, so given this def defense and definition of Christianity in the face of accusations of ideology, what are some key implications? Rahner gives three to begin, though the church does have some general norms and lay people should take up the responsibility for putting into practice Catholic social teaching in the political sphere, the church as such should not give directives about concrete political programs. Likewise, while Christians have a responsibility for acting in history, they should never identify with an ideology that claims to be the way and the only way. The only absolute yes that Christians should give is to the will of the living God. Next, Rahner advises tolerance towards other Christians and towards non-Christians alike. Catholics should have a healthy zeal for their faith, but they should not be fanatics who seek the conversion of others at all costs. He also advises humility towards the hierarchical church. Catholics should be free to take up concrete positions and to defend them as individuals. But if the church ends up taking the contrary position on the matter, then one should accept defeat and stay faithful. Lastly, Rahner reiterates that Christianity should stay independent on earthly matters. Christians should not treat temporal affairs as if they were absolute. Errors have been made here before. How can one deny it? But the best way to proceed is to avoid the temptation to put a Christian stamp on a concrete historical position. Trust not in man. Trust not in political parties. Trust in God and God's grace. It's only by a firm proximity to grace that Christians can avoid falling into ideological traps. And that's how Rahner ends his essay on this most important topic at the heart of the third session of the Second Vatican Council, the relation between ideology and Christianity, with a plea that Christians lean into pure grace, not into earthly commitments. Before synthesizing and commenting on Rahner and Althusser as well, let's see now how Ignacio Eucaria approaches the matter. Ignacio Eucaria, born in 1930 and died in 1989, was a Spanish-born uh, Salvadoran Jesuit philosopher and theologian, and he wrote the piece that I'll be drawing from today, The Liberating Function of Philosophy, in 1985, four years before his assassination. Influenced by both the Marxist tradition of Althusser as a social philosopher and by Rahner directly as his very theology student, Eucaria's writing will manifest traces of both traditions, while also doing something very different. Eucaria writes from a Latin American positionality, which I think gives him a perspective that Althusser and Rahner Honor, both Europeans simply did not have. A large chunk of Eucaria's article deals with the topic of ideology, but not all of it, so I'll be drawing from the sections most relevant to our subject today and skipping over some others. The big question of the essay, as the title suggests, is how is philosophy related to freedom? And he gets right into it, giving uh, four quick responses. To do the technical work of philosophy, an academic discipline requiring a certain kind of training, one has to have a relative amount of freedom from basic needs. It's hard to be starving and philosophizing at the same time. It's hard to be working two jobs and philosophizing at the same time. 
Next, philosophy moves people from ignorance and superstition towards the truth. We can trace this role back to Plato's Socrates, who encouraged his fellow ancient Greeks to discontinue belief in the gods who act in immoral and irrational ways in the myths of the poets. Another connection between philosophy and freedom points to just the opposite, the way in which some philosophers have distorted reason to, quote, maintain a specific established order, end quote. The same Socrates of Plato advocated for the myth of the metals that would divide people into three classes according to their alleged natures, common workers, soldiers, and rulers. Lastly, A. Korea issues a more positive prescriptive statement, philosophy should be freeing. As one might expect of a liberation philosopher-theologian, he cites the first citations of the text, the Bible, and Marx. John 8.32, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And Marx's 11th thesis on Feuerbach, philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. It's fine and well to pursue truth for truth's sake, but the pursuit does not stop there. There's a dialectic between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, between right belief and right action. This dialectical relation is particularly relevant on the Latin American continent, a context of structural oppression and often enough repression. In this environment, philosophy has a duty to contribute to freedom. It has a definite practical purpose, that of contributing to the liberation of the dominated majorities. Part of the dynamic of domination is the ideological manipulation of philosophy, which philosophers should critique and combat. The development of liberation philosophy in Latin America is a hopeful and necessary project that can become a uniquely Latin American line of philosophical thought, something that he claims has yet to emerge. There are particular Latin American traditions in art and in theology that have contributed significantly to the global scene. Not the case in philosophy, he says. Perhaps liberation philosophy can be this contribution. What this contribution will not be, however, is a vulgarization of philosophy for the masses. I'm thinking that Ea Korea is militating a bit against Lenin here, who, as we remember from our previous episode, defined ideology in positive terms as a translation of scientific socialism into popular terms for the sake of mass mobilization. Rather, Ea Korea holds that philosophy should collaborate intellectually with the masses, indeed, and more on this in a bit, but also maintaining the autonomy of its intellectual domain. Essentially, what he wants to say is that philosophy is not sociology, it's not economics, it's not politics. It's a field of its own, with its own methods and its own object, what he would call in his posthumous uh, book, The Philosophy of Historical Reality, quote, the metaphysical whole of historical reality, end quote. Philosophy should contribute to historical change, indeed, but as philosophy. Okay, so following this enlightened introduction from Ea Korea, the first part of the text is dedicated to the critical function of philosophy, which is where ideology comes in. As Ea Korea hinted to, ideology is in one sense an abuse of philosophy, and philosophy should work against this abuse as it's occurring now. He writes, quote, the best philosophy is never a mere reflection of the existing order, end quote. On the contrary, good philosophy is critical of the dominant ideology, which, in a tip of the hat to Althusser, he says, quote, can be driven not only by all sorts of theoretical mechanisms, but also by a series of objectifications and social relationships, end quote. Ideology is not merely a spiritual phenomenon, it's incarnate in material objects and relations. 
The notion of a dominant ideology, which Aikaria takes for granted as a historical reality, raises an important question for him. Why does the ruling class make use of ideology? Why do they mobilize the ideological plane? He offers an initial response. People need, quote, theoretical explanations and justifications, end quote, that have, quote, the appearance of truth and goodness, end quote. Here's a tip of the hat to Pascal, Althusser, uh, Loth, and Rahner. Uh, phenomenologically, ideology is downstream of matter, politics, and economics. It justifies afterwards. It follows practice. Philosophy should expose the way that ideology presents itself as truth and goodness when it is really only a justification for the maintenance of the ruling class's material power. Now, so far, we've seen that Aikaria has treated ideology as a negative reality, but he affirms as well, different from Althusser and Rahner, a non-pejorative meaning of ideology. He says that there are some important aspects of reality for which a scientific type of knowledge is not possible, like the domains of humanity, society, and history. These non-scientific domains often invoke concepts of value or meaning. These concepts are not empirical, but they're not a free-for-all either. One can get questions of value and meaning wrong. One can distort these questions, but the possibility of distortion should not inhibit the human pursuit to address the deep questions of humanity, society, and history. And so Aikaria proposes a neutral or perhaps positive definition of ideology, quote, a coherent, comprehensive, and evaluative explanation through concepts, symbols, images, references, etc., which goes beyond simple fragmented observation, both in narrow areas and especially in more general and even all-embracing areas, end quote. There's certainly a parallel here with what Rahner had called metaphysics. Though their metaphysics are different, Aikaria would agree with Rahner that metaphysical questions are legitimate, and not only legitimate, a key part of the human experience. The difference here is that Rahner had maintained a negative definition of ideology, perhaps because of a philosophical choice or perhaps because of clarity. We'll return to this question a little bit later. While Aikaria wants to affirm a definition of ideology that is, to be real about it, also a common one, a coherent, comprehensive, evaluative explanation of general reality in a non-pejorative sense. It's the sense in which the terms ideology and worldview and way of thinking are similar. Given the second non-pejorative definition of ideology, Aikaria, and we can thank him for it because it clarifies his terminology in the remainder of the essay, makes a distinction between ideology in this neutral sense and idealization, which he defines as the frequently unconscious, unintentional hiding of reality or deformation of reality shaped by group interests. He enumerates five characteristics of idealization, which echoes Rauner. 1. It totalizes a specific reality. 2. It has a public, impersonal, collective, social character. 3. It responds to collective interests. 4. It is presented as true. and 5. It is presented as universal and necessary. I could choose any number of examples to illustrate what Aikaria has to say here, but since it's on my mind now and it happened very recently, we can look at the bombing on Tuesday, November 15th, 2022, that killed two Polish nationals near the Ukraine-Poland border. I'll describe this matter according to the information available to me. I have no special insight into its concrete details. In general, the Western world, especially through the mainstream news media, has cultivated a trust in two institutions in the last year, the United States intelligence community and the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky. 
The former because it was right about Russia invading Ukraine, and the second because he is the leader of the resistance to this invasion. So when a bomb hit Poland and killed two people on November 15th, and both a U.S. intelligence person and Zelensky claimed that Russia had carried out this bombing, many, many people jumped to the conclusion that indeed, whether by accident or on purpose, some Russian military personnel had bombed Poland. In time, we came to find out, however, that the deaths in Poland were caused by a Ukrainian-fired missile, not a Russian-fired one. So looking at Aokarya's characteristics, we can see that this case fits well as a material objective instance of idealization. People totalized the specific realities of the positions of the U.S. intelligence person and Zelensky. The result was misinformation of a public, impersonal, collective, and social character. The misinformation served the collective interests of Ukraine and those who want to see more Western involvement on behalf of Ukraine. The misinformation was presented as true, and it was taboo for a while to suggest that this universal and necessary truth of the Polish deaths as a clear instance of the escalation of Russian aggression was anything but that. As the French would say, voila, for a recent example. Moving on, Korea says that the injustice of a system leads to idealization. Ideology seeks to cover up injustice, especially the injustice of hypocrisy. Quote, highly restricted social institutions, end quote, like, quote, the army, the church, or the political party, end quote, are extremely susceptible to idealization because of what's at stake if there's a gap between what they say and what they do. The army, the church, and the political parties don't want people to lose faith respectively in the army in the church, or in the political parties. These institutions are specifically meant to help people, so when they don't, there's a major problem. Ideology helps to smooth over this problem. Let me offer another example here. Not too long ago, I was having a conversation with someone about clerical sex criminals in France, and he said, quote, we shouldn't be surprised that there are sinners in the church, even in positions of authority in the church, end quote. This comment, laden with religious ideological power, made me very upset. He was seeking to rationalize the idea he was seeking to rationalize the abuse, justifying it afterwards, as Loth would say, We are all sinners. We all live in our fallen human nature. Horrible crimes will happen. What can we do? Idealization through and through the manipulation of the doctrine of original sin to whitewash abuses of power, to normalize them, to say they can't be impeded. It's really saddening and angering stuff, but it's where we are. We need to act against it. As Aokarya says, quote, great philosophers distinguish between truth and appearances, end quote. And that's precisely what we need to do. Philosophy is a protest against the nothingness of idealization and an embrace of the reality of truth. We need good philosophers who can sort through the layers of idealization that put up barriers to positive social change. Philosophy should be critical, but as Aokarya asserts in his next section, philosophy should not only be critical, but also creative. And as an FYI, I'm especially for those who will be following along with the text from home. I'm going to squeeze this section together with the next few because while he says many engaging things in the middle third of this essay, not all of them are directly related to the topic of ideology at hand. I'm going to focus on the relationship between philosophy and praxis, paying close attention to where he engages Marxism. So as we briefly mentioned earlier, philosophy is not the same thing as politics. It's likewise not the same thing as community organizing, but 
and that's a big but, that's not to say that philosophy is useless. Philosophy can positively offer, quote, theoretical justificative backing for a historical praxis, end quote, and, quote, orientation to the ultimate for that practice and the subjects who drive it, end quote. To put it concisely and in plain terms, philosophy can speak to the source or motivation of the praxis of liberation, and it can speak to the end goal of the praxis of liberation. The mechanics in between inspiration and finality, though, are proper to the fields of applied politics, economics, and sociology. So philosophy has its role to play, and that role is important, but Korea warns against a naivete that would see social achievements as a one-to-one function of philosophical expressions. Philosophers should be modest, and Marxist-Leninist philosophers in particular, he explains, need to be modest about the relation between their materialism and their organizing. Quote, we cannot say that Marxist analysis, let alone Marxist-Leninist praxis, depends in any substantial way on dialectical materialism understood as a philosophical expression. The great mass movements, revolutionary processes, and the establishment of vanguards depend even less on theoretical materialism, even in the form of historical materialism." Revolutionary success with the masses is not highly dependent on the ideological purity of the organizers. And on this point, I would like to cite Fidel Castro at some length, whose interpretation of his evolution towards greater and greater affiliation with Marxism-Leninism illustrates well, I think, what Aya Correa was saying about theory and practice, which, though certainly connected, are not in a relationship of simple positive correlation. Essentially, this speech from 1961, the speech in which he made clear to the world his personal affiliation with Marxism-Leninism and the ML character of the Cuban Revolution, points to the fact that people don't need to have high levels of theoretical philosophical understanding to make and even lead successful revolutions. Quote, In my student years, I had studied the Communist Manifesto and selected works of Marx, Engels, and Lenin. Of course, it is very interesting to reread now the things I read at that time. Well now, do I believe in Marxism? I absolutely believe in Marxism. Did I believe on the 1st of January? I believed on the 1st of January. Did I believe on the 26th of July? I believed on the 26th of July. Did I understand it as I do today, after almost 10 years of struggle? No, I did not understand it as I do today. Comparing what I understood then with what I understand today, there is a great difference. Did I have prejudices? Yes, I had prejudices on the 26th of July. Yes, could I have been called a thoroughgoing revolutionary on the 26th of July? No, I could not have been called a thoroughgoing revolutionary. Could I have been called a thoroughgoing revolutionary on the 1st of January? No, I could not have been called a thoroughgoing revolutionary. Could I be called a thoroughgoing revolutionary today? That would mean that I feel satisfied with what I know. And of course, I am not satisfied. Do I have any doubt about Marxism, and do I feel that certain interpretations were wrong and have to be revised? No, I do not have the slightest doubt. What occurs to me is precisely the opposite. The more experience we gain from life, the more we learn what imperialism is, and not by word, but in the flesh and blood of our people, the more we have to face up to that imperialism, the more we learn about imperialist policies throughout the world, in South Vietnam, in the Congo, in Algeria, in Korea, everywhere in the world, the more we dig deeper and uncover the bloody claws of imperialism, the miserable exploitation, the abuse they commit in the world, the crimes they commit against humanity, the more in the first place we feel sentimentally Marxist, emotionally Marxist, and the more we see and discover all the truths contained in the doctrine of Marxism. 
the more we have to carry out the reality of a revolution and the class struggle, and we see what the class struggle really is in the setting of a revolution, the more convinced we become of all the truths of Marxism, of all the truths Marx and Engels wrote and the truly ingenious interpretations of scientific socialism Lenin made." End quote. We can glean some general stages of Castro's path from this section of the speech. First, he's situated in a world, that of imperialist oppression. Within this world, as a university student, he studied some key writings of Marx, Engels, and Lenin. The combination of the experience of our imperialist world and the study of Marxism led him to what he called sentimental Marxism. Perhaps at the beginning, he did not have a rigorous understanding of Marxism or even readily accept the whole of its teachings. But what he did know was that the world was in need of changing towards the liberation of the oppressed and that Marx was implicated in that struggle. So he began to act, to rebel, to organize. And the more he did so, the more he turned back to Marxism. And the more he turned back to Marxism, the more he realized its truth. There was no need to have a fully-fledged philosophical system from the start. There was no need to comprehend the finer points of the transformation of the idealist dialectics of Hegel into the materialist dialectics of Engels. But what Marx did offer was a certain ideological expression. And this expression inspired, promoted, and deepened action. Marxism attracted, Marxism motivated. Revolutionary praxis has a theoretical moment, or better put, a series of the theoretical moments. And these theoretical moments are indispensable indeed. They're indispensable because praxis without an analytic, interpretive, justifying orientation is nonsense. What are we working for? What's inspiring our work at all? But these theoretical moments are not the end-all, be-all. We don't have to have the same metaphysics to be on the same team of social struggle. We don't have to have the same religion. We don't have to read the same books. Yes, there's no such thing as pure action without thought, but it's not necessarily to think with the precision of a professional social philosopher to be a good revolutionary. Now a little more on Aeokurea and Marxism. We can see that Aeokurea is hesitant to identify with Marxism-Leninism, even though Marx and Lenin are among his preferred philosophical dialogue partners, along with Hegel, Heidegger, and principally Zubiri. Though in the narrative of Althusser, Christianity presented Pierre with a personal interpolation that he accepted with all his heart, all his soul, and all his understanding, Marxism-Leninism in real life presented Aeokurea with a personal in interpolation. He certainly met many committed Marxist-Leninists and had the opportunity to join them, as some of his contemporaries did. But Aeokurea did not give himself fully to this interpolation. He never said the and so be it to Marxism-Leninism. There was no amen. Why not? I think there are four main reasons. Like Rahner, Aeokurea was philosophically and theologically open to the spirit. This should not be surprising for a Christian. And he interacted with a Marxism-Leninism that was not only philosophically intramundane, Aeokurea had no problem with intramundane philosophy, as Zubiri's was too, but also atheist, actively against God and really all notions of spiritual reality. Zubiri talked about reality in a physical, material way, but he also left open the question of God's ability to act in history, certainly a fundamental point for a liberation theologian. To the extent that Marxism is closed off to God and God's action in history, Aeokurea is against Marxism. That's the first reason. The second is simple enough. He believed that some existing Marxist-Leninist states of his day had veered into authoritarianism, and he did not want to associate himself with the baggage of their repression. We see this sort of language in his essay, The Historicity of Christian Salvation. 
Third, Aikaria, though a dialectician himself in many ways, disagreed with some nuanced points of Marxist philosophical dialectics. There's a reason why he was more at home with Zubiri than with Engels, and one can read his book The Philosophy of Historical Reality to see why. Lastly, and maybe the most pertinent to this essay, Aikaria lamented Marxist dogmatism writing, quote, those of us who have tried to draw on Marxism as philosophy committed to processes of liberation have found it to be a fully formed philosophy, not helpful in the dawning moment of new realities, end quote. We can see a hint of sadness in the first part of this quote. He tried Marxism. He wanted to find hope in it. He looked to it to help him think through oppression and liberation. Yet what he found was, quote, a fully formed philosophy, end quote, by which I think he means to say an inflexible one. Having grown so much in a certain direction, having matured as it did, Marxism was too closed to folks like Aikaria who had questions that fundamentally challenged philosophical commitments Marxism had already taken in the course of its development. And that's why I think we see what we see with Aikaria. He sounds like a Marxist in many lines of his political and economic writings. He drew from Marxism often. But this drawing from is more eclectic than principled. And that's, I don't think, uh, too shocking. He brought different principles to the table. Many of these principles were friendly to Marxism, but they were not entirely the same. For now, an example in this essay of Aikaria sounding rather like a Marxist. Quote, in principle, the social forces that can contribute most to liberation are the ones that constitute the principal contradiction between the forces responsible for domination and for oppression. End quote. If I gave this quote to a group of random social philosophers and asked them to identify the text from which the quote is taken, I have no doubt that many would name Mao's on contradiction. And yes, like Mao, Aikaria advocated for the importance of identifying the principal contradiction of the particular historical moment and then situating one's thought and praxis there. And Aikaria not only advocated for this way of proceeding, he lived it. When laws and reforms came up in El Salvador, he did not hesitate to publicly point out that the principal contradiction at hand in the law or reform is, for instance, the class struggle between the landowners and the peasants. In other historical moments, he would point to the principal contradiction of imperialism and national liberation. It's not necessarily that Aikaria was accepting the ideology of Mao. Rather, he was being a good social philosopher. And on the specific point of the fundamentality of the identification of the principal contradiction, being a good social philosopher means agreeing with Mao here and sounding like Mao here. I bring all of this up not just because it's in the text, but because a common objection to liberation theology is that it's a pseudo-Christian idealization of Marxism. And my response to this objection is to point to the example of Aikaria and say, his writings demonstrate that he does not give an all-in yes, which is characteristic of ideology, to Marxism. There's simply too many critiques and rejections of Marxism in his texts to intelligently say that he was a Marxist intellectual. That said, though, on some key points of social analysis and philosophy, A. Korea agrees with Marx, Lenin, and even Mao. And you cannot deny that either. It's complex. You cannot say A. Korea was a Marxist, but you cannot say that he wasn't friendly to Marxism either. All right, that might be enough on Marxism and Aikaria for now. Let's finish this section on Aikaria with a specifically Christian point that Aikaria takes both from Rahner and also takes in a different direction from Rahner. In Rahner's Foundations of Christian Faith, 
Rauner writes, quote, Philosophy can never be done as if the philosopher wasn't familiar with the experiences of Christianity. A philosophy free of a relation to theology is, as far as our historical situation, entirely impossible, end quote. Aya thinks the same, especially in the case of a philosopher who is also a Christian. And so he wonders how theology might influence where philosophy situates itself. Philosophers must always make choices about where to begin their philosophy, and the question or questions that they are going to address about the context from which they will write. Christianity can and should inform a Christian philosopher with respect to these decisions. But Christianity is not the only thing that should inform a Christian philosopher's situatedness in the field. Historical reality should play a role too. As such, in Latin America today, Ea Correa argues, the fundamental choice of the intellectual location of a Christian philosopher ought to be the cross. One should begin to do philosophy from the foot of the cross, not only because of its centrality in the story of Jesus, but also because it's the intellectual location of Latin America's suffering majorities. He writes, quote, From the Christian viewpoint in general, the starting point is the cross as a general category, and historically it is the crucifixion of the people under all forms of domination and exploitation. This choice of the cross is paradoxical, but the paradox is viewed on the one hand as typically Christian and, on the other, as a dialectical theoretical principle of primary importance. The foolishness of the cross over against Greek and Occidental wisdom is a quintessentially dialectical place, not because it denies wisdom in general, but because it denies precisely the kind of wisdom formulated by the active crucifiers, that is, by those who are not concerned by the massive phenomenon of the historical crucifixion of humanity. End quote. It's based on this suggestion from Ea Correa that I'd like to make some synthetic closing remarks on ideology and liberation theology. But before I do that, I'd like to summarize Ea Correa's overall argumentation in this paper because, well, we've taken some detours along the way and because he does it so very well at the end of the paper. We can boil down his thought to eight theses. One, historical reality is a complex whole, dynamic, praxic, and unfolding in time. Two, praxis has a theoretical moment. Three, the theoretical moment is ideological in that it gives praxis meaning, motivation, and a view of the whole. Four, philosophy can turn into the idealization, but it can also be critical, systematic, and creative. Five, the liberation of philosophy is a liberation from its participation in idealization as well as its commitment to the liberation of the oppressed. Six, philosophy should be related to the liberation of the crucified of history. Seven, Christian philosophy is best done among the poor and oppressed. And eight, these theses can be a basis for a truly Latin American philosophy. If Christians think from the distinctly Christian place of the cross in and alongside the crucified masses of the world, as Aea suggests, and as liberation theology in general suggests, then the liberation theology movement can help the church in general to shift to the correct side of the historical struggle that inevitably happens in all the ideological state apparatuses, including the religious one. It is not a question of whether the church is exempt from class struggle. 
the church, by virtue of its existence in history, will be a place of class struggle. We cannot pretend that the church is the perfect society. As a wise Catholic leader once told me, I've come to understand that the issues of society always make their way into the church. And it's not only that. The issues of society are already in the church. The question is the position that church folks will take. Will it be at the foot of the cross, alongside the crucified of history? Will it be the crucifiers themselves? Or will we flee from the cross, ceding the political space to the powerful by virtue of our silence? We have choices to make about the perspective we take. As Aikaria recommends, let us start at the cross. If we start there, if we remain close to the poor, our ideology is less likely to devolve into idealization. For one, the poor are those who struggle to live. Their struggle for survival is immediate and material, and those who take their side of the struggle will have a concrete task before them. Their thought will be rooted in this material reality, and this experience of reality will govern their ideas, not vice versa. In the contradiction of the subjective and the objective, the objective pole will be dominant as it should be. Second, idealization always covers up some injustice. Yet those who struggle for life alongside the oppressed will not have their own injustices to hide, but the injustices of the oppressors to bring into the light. They will be like the prophets. They will not make sacrifices to the strange gods of money and power in the dark. They will denounce this idolatry with boldness. Third, idealization is precisely that distance between words and deeds. If people see that Jesus announces that the reign of God belongs to the poor by word and deed, but Christians do not, then Christians deserve to be called hypocrites. I think here of 1 John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Quote, little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this, we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before God. End quote. We will know that we are in the truth and not under the power of idealization if we love in action. Pascal said, dip your fingers in the holy water. Kneel, have the masses said, then you will believe. With the liberation theologians, we can say, befriend the masses, organize with the masses, pray with the masses. Then you will know the extent to which you believe like the masses, true belief, or like their oppressors, false belief. It's no wonder that the same James who says, quote, show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith, end quote, also says, quote, come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you, end quote. Let us look at our actions with a cool objectivity. Let us look at how we spend our time. Then we will know what our ideology is, for our ideology is built into the practices of our lives. In this vein, I think it's important to return to Althusser for a second. The same Althusser who basically said that the church was a strong and influential backer of feudalism and a weak and diminishing supporter of capitalism, also told the Chilean Marta Harnaker, at the time a young Catholic leftist, that religion is not necessarily to be reduced to an ideological state apparatus. Marx criticized religion because it was an opiate for the masses, the promise of a good afterlife that tranquilized poor folks' desire for earthly change. But to the extent that religion is not simply an opiate for the masses, not simply otherworldly, not totally transcendent, there is no need to criticize it. The Marxist critique of religion does not hold when religion takes the side of the crucified in history. And to that point, 
While I respect Rahner and agree with many of the things that he says about ideology, I do have a problem with his injunction at the conclusion of his article in which he advises Christians to, quote, a trust in God and in God's pure grace, end quote. Nothing wrong with the trust in God and God's grace. I'm all for that. It's that funny word, pure, that he inserts there at the end that's problematic. What is this pure grace of which he speaks? What is it pure from? The context seems to suggest that pure grace is what helps keep Christians from becoming impure by falling into ideology. And here's exactly where we see the limits of Rahner and his transcendental everyday experience take on ideology. By stripping ideology of its class character and his choice of definition, recall the vague in the service of a political design clause, he's defined away the very problem at the heart of the issue. There's no such thing as a pure, non-degraded version of Christianity in history. There's no ideologically neutral Christianity. To put it simply, Rahner is being an idealist here. And this is why Aikaria's approach to ideology via the double definition, with its distinction between ideology and idealization, and his insistence on taking the side of the poor, is the better way. Naturally, we should work against idealization, false and unjust. No one really needs to tell us that. Yet each of us has a worldview nonetheless, an ideology, and we have some choices to make about how we are to construct it. If we choose to start with the, quote, beyond mere biological parts, end quote, as Rahner does, and we can pause to note that bio refers to life, then we're going to skip over the fundamental question of life itself. We're going to talk about the soul's upward yearning for spiritual food and pass right over the body's very earthly and immediate yearning for physical food. And that's what Rahner does. We read over his take on ideology and we find something tragically missing. It's poor, it's victims, it's oppressed. St. Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10 says that when he met with the other apostles, quote, they asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do, end quote. And that's the same thing that the crucified are asking of the church today, of its theologians and philosophers included. Don't forget the poor. In his treatment of ideology, Aikaria remembered the poor. Rahner did not. And the course and destination of their approaches bears out this fundamental difference. Before finishing, I want to address two questions from listeners. The first was a request for titles of books, articles, and podcasts that are in harmony with my liberation position. I would say that my position of liberation, philosophy, and theology is firm, but my particular theoretical situatedness within the fields of liberation, theology, and philosophy are always growing. I can't say that I've read extensively enough to affirm definitively that I, for example, side with Sabrino's take on Christology over Segundo's or Althusser's take on ideology over Dussel's or Gramsci's. That's it. I think I can point to some resources uh, with which I resonate now. As far as books go, uh, The Liberation of Theology, 1976, by Juan Luis Segundo is a classic, but I'm often surprised that few people know about it and uh, few people have read it. 
To shortly describe this book, I'll give an analogy to constitutional law. There's a legal philosophy that sees the U.S. Constitution as a dead document. It searches for the meaning of the text at the time it was written and applies this meaning coldly and literally. Then there is a legal philosophy that sees the Constitution as a living document. It asks what's the spirit of the text and how does it dialogue with our present context. With respect to Christian revelation and scripture and tradition and its meaning, Segundo argues in this book that our approach should be less like the dead legal philosophy and more like the living one. Without a true and serious engagement with the present day, revelation is dead and stale. The source of living water that flows from the life of Christ dries up if there is no true discernment in relation to the signs of the times. At some point in the near future, I'd like to do a series of episodes on uh, Segundo's uh, amazing, fiery, can't-put-it-down kind of book. Article-wise, The Hidden Logic of Modernity, Locke and the Inversion of Human Rights by Franz Hinklemert is a lesser-known interpretation of the tendency, particularly strong under U.S. empire, to destroy human rights in the name of preserving human rights themselves. And Hinklemert argues here that, quote, the history of modern human rights is precisely the history of their inversion, which transforms the violation of those rights into a categorical imperative for political action, end quote. I think this take is an especially relevant one in today's context of the, at times, woefully hegemonic globalization of human rights discourse. Podcasts, there are many, of course, above all. I have to give a shout out to Dean Detloff and Matt Bernico at the Magnificast. They've done, as of today when I'm recording, uh, 308 episodes from a liberationist perspective. Amazing. They talk uh, theory, practice, history. They have interviews, jokes, personal narratives, biographies, music. The breadth of engagement, experience, and intellectual knowledge is amazing. Many listeners probably already know about the Magnificast, but if not, uh, check it out. I'd also recommend the family of podcasts associated with Rev Left Radio, Revolutionary Left Radio itself, Red Menace, and Guerrilla History. Brett, Allison, Henry, and Adnan provide a revolutionary perspective that's principled, dynamic, open to spirituality, and open to intellectual diversity. It's hard to find, I think, a set of podcasts that tops their excellent combination of frequency and depth. Check them out as well for sure. The second question from a listener has to do with slavery, early Christianity, and the difficulty this history poses for liberation theologians and Catholics in general. First, there's the importance for Catholics to acknowledge publicly and personally the reality that the Catholic Church has participated in, ideologically sustained, and practiced enslavement, slave ownership, and more broadly, racism and white supremacy. Second, there's the importance for Catholics, too, to the extent possible, and I say that because much of the harm is simply irreparable, make reparations to the families and nations that we have oppressed. This project should and will necessarily be a part of a larger process of the decolonization of the Americas, Africa, Asia, and Oceania. For those who would like to learn more about the Society of Jesus, My Religious Order, its historical oppression of people held in slavery, and the current work of reconciliation, I would recommend checking out the Slavery, History, Memory, and Reconciliation Project. There's a lot of detailed information 
on the project's website. Now, the church's historical condoning of slavery poses a challenge to the church's self-understanding as a good force in history that I think liberation theology is, is well positioned to address precisely because of the things I've discussed earlier in this episode about ideology and more recently in the episode about Juan Luis II and the liberation of theology. Liberation theologians influenced by Althusser recognize that there is a class war that reproduces itself in all the ideological state apparatuses, including the church. The point is for Catholics in the present moment to place themselves on the side of the poor in this struggle, and this struggle certainly includes work against white supremacy. Then regarding Revelation, the issue of the church's condoning of slavery in the Bible and in the early church demonstrates so manifestly that the theological position that asks Catholics to hold to first-century revelation by the letter as a dead document and not by the Spirit as a living document to be interpreted in conjunction with the signs of the times is simply untenable. Segundo's book does a good job of defending the authenticity of the position of a living approach to revelation. There's much more to be said, uh, but that's where we might end for now. Please do continue to send questions. I'll do my best to research and respond by email or as now, if possible, in the episodes themselves. Thanks so much for joining today's show. Let's end with a prayer, the Canticle of Zechariah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. God has come to God's people and set them free. God has raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of the house of God's servant, David. Through God's holy prophets, God promised of old, that God would save us from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us. God promised to show mercy to our mothers and fathers and to remember God's holy covenant. This was the oath God swore to our father Abraham to set us free from the hands of our enemies, free to worship God without fear, holy and righteous in God's sight all the days of our life. You, my child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare God's way, to give God's people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. In the tender compassion of our Lord, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.